Hey there, friends. Jay Revel here. Welcome to another edition of Mid-Am Crisis. Got a great show for you this week. Someone I've really been itching to get uh, on here for a conversation. His name is Michael Wolf. You probably know him best for his Twitter handle, at Bama Bearcat. Uh, the uh, man hails from the Birmingham area in the great state of Alabama. He is uh, undoubtedly a golf aficionado, someone who has a great appreciation for both the history of the game and the depths of discovery that are available through traveling um, to explore the great courses of the world. He has an extensive library in his home with over 2,000 books, uh, and that knowledge uh, shows through in his Twitter account as he takes us on uh, little uh, mini adventures, uh, 120 characters at a time. And uh, I've, I've really enjoyed getting to know Michael the last couple of years. Uh, uh, we, we came very close to being able to take a trip together until uh, it fell through on my part, but I'm looking forward to taking him up, him up on that opportunity at some point in the future. Uh, we had a wonderful, ranging conversation, again, obviously talking about history and travel, and uh, also finished it up with some talk about what he does for a living, which is managing the lives and businesses of uh, touring professionals. He's got a select group of clients through his company, 288 Sports, and uh, I really enjoy diving into some of his perspective uh, on the game at the touring level. Um, Michael's a great guy, a uh, father, husband, someone who has uh, dedicated uh, his life to uh, raising a family but also building a business and uh, uh, really jumping headfirst into the game of golf and searching out all the things that makes it so wonderful. He's a great conversationalist and someone that I'm looking forward again to being able to do uh, more of this in person with in the not too distant future. So, uh, if you don't follow at Bama Bearcat, I hope you do. Uh, maybe this uh, uh, episode will trigger that for you. Uh, you're going to find a lot of things you like there uh, and a great guy uh, who runs that handle. So, Michael Wolf on the show this week. I hope you enjoy it. As always, uh, if you're if you like listening to Mid-Am Crisis, if you uh, or a, a, a listener from day one or someone who's just tuning in this week, I hope you'll take some time to maybe go into your favorite listing platform and leave the show a review. Uh, that always helps others to find it. And uh, while you're at it, if you wouldn't mind uh, helping to uh, share our little story and bring others to the podcast, I sure would appreciate it. Uh, as always, too, you can find my work and everything that I do over on my website at jrevel.com. We post all the episodes of uh, the show there. Uh, as well as other little um, stories and tidbits that I like to write from time to time. So, without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to my conversation with my friend, Michael Wolf. Michael, how we doing, buddy? I'm doing well, Jay. How are you? I'm doing all right, doing all right. How's uh, everything in the great state of Alabama? uh today cold yesterday and the day before <laughs> warm and sunny and springy and today uh a step backwards but uh we'll, we'll get there eventually it feels like we always have you know a couple of doses of uh fake spring before we get to the real deal maybe uh maybe sliding into one of those as we speak it sounds like i think so um how's uh the golf been uh this winter have you had a chance to get out much i have um i'm in birmingham alabama and uh, here it seems like uh, November is kind of the new October and October is the new September. Um, you know, it's usually 
it used to be good golf down here until Thanksgiving, and now it feels like at least November, if not December, is some of the better months. Uh, I played a club with that's Bermuda, and we go dormant and don't overseed or anything, and uh, it's just fantastic until it gets you know too waterlogged, and then it's really tough to chip off of, and the you know tightly mown areas, and that's where we've been probably for the last six weeks or so. So it'd be nice to dry that out a little bit and green up and away we'll go. Be another yeah. Year. Yeah. Yeah. We got, um, uh, last week was our first like full blown week of, you know, North of 75 and sunny and, uh, the golf course is all just, just erupted with green. You know I mean? It, uh, it, it definitely has, uh, improved. I'm hoping we don't get another cold snap to knock it back, but, uh, fun time of year. How's, how would you describe the, uh, golf scene in Birmingham? Great, great city, probably an underrated city from a lot of aspects. What's, what's the golf world like up there? Uh, it's, it is a tough climate for golf as far as, you know, just hard bread clay. Um, you know, Birmingham is not, uh, was not blessed with, um, you know, sand, uh, a sand belt or anything like that. And I think a lot of people, um, mistakenly think that when they think of Birmingham, Alabama, they think of kind of an old Southern town and Birmingham is actually a, a fairly new in the grand scheme of things, a, a newer, um, city. It was, it was founded as a, a backup to, uh, Pittsburgh when, when the, the barons, I guess, steel barons in Pittsburgh were running out of raw materials to make steel. They found Birmingham on the map and, and founded it, but but Birmingham was not an an, an old city by any means, um, like Montgomery would be or Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and therefore um, we kind of missed the whole you know golden age of of golf. There's no you know hmm. Seth Rainers or Alistair McKenzie's or anything like that down here. We we had a couple of Donald Ross courses that unfortunately were renovated multiple times and and kind of renovated out of out of existence. Um, at the Country Club of Birmingham and at Mountain Brook Golf Club, so um, yeah, so most of it is is newer golf down here. And the on the public scene, the 800 pound gorilla is the Robert Grant Jones Trail. You know, there it's a kind of a partnership with the uh, Teachers Pension Fund, I guess retirement fund down here. And um, and because of that, they you know they advertise heavily and they and they cater to the the travel golf crowd kind of this time of year. Um, and it's good, solid, decent golf. But, you know, if you're a golf architectural fan like myself, um, it's, you know, not a not a ton of variety there. So um, most of the golf I play is usually, um, you know, your fairly typical neighborhood country clubs and private clubs, things like that. And then occasional forays out into the public golf courses around, but not a whole lot of real special courses um, in this part of the world. Yeah. What about uh, you? Ever get out to uh, farm links in the big city of Silicon? I do. Uh, our, our, uh, I know Curtis, the head professional there. He used to work at the mm-hmm. club where I'm a member. Um, yeah, I, I enjoy it. It's a you know interesting concept at the beginning where they kind of use it as a test lab for for agronomy for um, you know trying out different things in partnership with a local university. But uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's it's uh, I, I tend to walk. I mean. My only exercise is golf, and and so walkability is at the very top of my you know wish list when it comes to golf courses, and it, it's pretty tough walk out there at times. So um, I don't get there a ton, and it's a little bit of drive away from from where I live. But uh, yeah, it's it's a good solid. It's definitely um, 
you know, if you're putting together a, a golf vacation or you were coming to Birmingham for a wedding or something, you were looking for just, you know, solid places to play public golf in Birmingham. Good, good is, um, are, are, are those older, former uh, Ross clubs at Mountain Brook and the country club there um, pretty walkable, I would imagine, or have they been mangled up? Over the uh, yeah, country club of Birmingham's 36 holes. Um, you know, they're um, the east course, the west course of the championship course, and then the east course. The west course was redone by um, Robert Trent Jones and then by, um, I guess, some shapers and some people that were – working for Pete Dye. I don't know how much of it was actually Pete Dye. And it, it, it's kind of hard to explain if you, if you think of like TPC sawgrass, but, but um, you know, in Birmingham, Alabama, and without a lot of water on it, mm-hmm. a lot of mounding and a lot of um, sculpting of the land versus, you know, um, just letting, letting the routing take, you know, what would's naturally there. So um, yeah. Hmm. Is there any appetite you think amongst those at those places to feel some of that back? I, I do not know. That would be way, way out of my pay grade. Um, what goes <laughs> on at those two places? Um, yeah, I know you've, you've done a great job uh, on Twitter in, in recent years, um, sharing a lot of your golf adventures and stories from other clubs that you've, you've dove into uh, in the past. Um, what's, what's your sort of, golf adventure been like in your life what's what's that journey where did that journey start and how to get to where you are today uh yeah it started i think um probably by not being a very good golfer um i was never (laughs) really into like competitive golf i um i also got sick as a as a kind of an adolescent in my senior year of high school i was diagnosed with crohn's disease and it, it was a tough battle for uh, seven years, uh, that culminated in, in, you know, a lot of surgeries and, and, and having a, a lot of vital parts of my body cut out. <laughs> and so, um, hmm. for, for a good part of my kind of my adolescent years, um, you know, golf for me was more about reading about golf than it was playing golf, or at least not, you know, never being able to really practice, uh, my game. It was more just something to do to get fresh air and, and get exercise when I, when I felt up to it versus, you know, thinking about competing or anything like that. And so I think a natural extension of that was I learned a lot about the game and about the history of the game and about places I was interested in seeing versus, you know, competing in junior events or, or playing for the, you know, playing junior college golf or something like that. And so uh, once I did get healthy and once I had a few dollars in my pocket, um, you know, I, I set about wanting to go see the places that I had read about. And so I think it, for me, it started with kind of learning about the places first and then, you know, forming a, a wish list of places I wanted to go see. And I've been fortunate enough to go see a lot of them. What's, um, what's on, obviously we've been, we've been in a weird time for travel these days, but what are the things that are still on the wish list that you'd like to get out of an experience? Yeah, I, I was, I was lucky. Um, I left for a kind of a dream, tr- dream trip, with uh, a couple of good friends of mine, um, we went down and I was invited to play with um, in one of Tom Doak's um, functions down in Australia last um, mm-hmm. February. And the timing was interesting. I, I left the United States last January, having never heard of the word coronavirus. And by the time I came back three and a half weeks later, you know, it was questionable whether I was going to be able to get back into the country um, on my flight home. So that was a I was kind of lucky to, to get that one in under the wire. I, I played 
29 rounds in Australia at, at 21 different courses in, in 19 days um, and returned, you know, last February. And then that's really the last time I've left the country, but I was glad to get that one in. Pro- probably to your question, you know, I'm, 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 I've been on a big kick with English golf lately. You know, there's just a ton of, of under the radar, great English golf courses that if you use the, you know, the Tom Doe scale of one to 10, maybe they're not tens or nines, but, but, you know, just, just places that most people have never heard of. And, and, you know, I, I'll be the only American visiting them the entire year maybe, but are just good, solid sixes and sevens. And, you know, you carry your own bag and you play in three hours and, and you go to the pub for some chips and a beer afterwards and, and the whole day costs you, you know, 30 bucks. Um, and, and just the people you meet along the way really is for me, a lot of it is just the, the people that you meet. Um, those are kind of where I've, you know, set my sights lately. Um, big trip next kind of dream trip. I haven't been to, um, South America yet. There's a big Alistair McKenzie fan. I'd love to get down to the jockey club in Argentina and, some other, some other Ellerstina in, in, uh, in Argentina. I'd like to, um, see some of those, um, and a couple other, um, you know, places down in South, South America probably is on my, you know, short-term list once the, once the plague passes. Are those, uh, McKenzie courses down in South America, are they, uh, held up pretty well to his original intent? Um, Based on what you've heard, seen, yeah, I read. think so. I mean, I think you know, McKenzie with his greens. I think every McKenzie course has been softened some, just because of the, you know, what's possible with green speeds that are running at eleven or twelve versus green speeds that are running at eight or nine. Um, I think, you know, ever you know, one of the, the the pictures that I I tweet out at night from my, you know, Bama Bearcat Twitter account. Um, you know, all the greens look look more dramatic back then than they do today. So there, there's probably some of that. There are a couple of greens in particular on the, on the, at the jockey club that, you know, I think they've, they've probably shrunk in size a little bit, but yeah, on the reports that I've gotten back are that they're, you know, it's still pretty faithful to, to him. They haven't, you know, blown anything up or, or redesigned anything and then had it recreated. It's still, you know, the bones of it are still there. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, you know, you're talking about some of these sort of, more obscure clubs and courses in England. Um, I, I don't know if you remember, remember what was it, a couple of years ago, we were talking about uh, a trip you were taking over there and I was going to kind of hitch my wagon to you. Uh, and I felt really good about where we were going yeah. to play. And then the, 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 the reason I was going was a good friend of mine was who lives there uh, was getting married and the poor bastard <laughs> got off the wedding at the last minute. And there went my reason for traveling. So, that um i i ended up having to cancel uh, yeah i do remember that that was very inconsiderate him uh that was a good trip. it was that, so that was uh <laughs> i took john cavalier uh links gems on on twitter and instagram john has a big following and that was kind of a i call that one the uh the uh the england starter set or the you know the first trip to england which is uh uh, when, when guys want to go for the first time and i'm going with them you know the best way to do it is kind of you fly into london and you played three or four Heathland courses. I, I may get this out of order, but I think on that trip we played Sunningdale, St. George's Hill, which is one of my favorite courses in the world. And I think we played Swindley Forest on that trip. And so you, you spend three or four days kind of on the outskirts of London playing Heathland, Heathland golf courses. And then hop in a car, drive down to the coast and play Royal St. George's where the 
where the open's going to be held this year. And then, you know, right next door is, um, roll sink ports or deal deal is a lot of people call it, uh, for short. Cause it's in the town of deal or just outside the town of deal. And then you can play princes is right there. And then, and then John and I drove over and we played another one of my favorites, which is rye. And then on the way back from rye, we stopped and played uh, little stone. So that's a nice, hmm. you know, for somebody who's, who's maybe been to, you know, on a buddy's golf trip to St. Andrews and they liked it. And then two or three years later, maybe they, they went over and they played, you know, Bally Bunyan and La Hinch and, and did that trip. And, and now they're really got a taste of it and they're thinking, all right, where, where can I go next? That's a pretty, you know, next trip. Uh, you know, if you've already been to, to the UK for golf trips, maybe three or four times and, and you're looking for something a little bit different, that, that, that the ones I just described, that's a pretty good, you know, kind of week long trip. Um, in, in every course that I just named is, you know, it, they're all accessible with, you know, um, either a letter to the pro or in a couple of cases, um, that you can actually book online. Um, and those are, you know, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna get, a, I think a little bit better feel for, um, for how the locals actually live and, and play and, and eat and, you know, experience the game, um, versus maybe some of the more, a little bit more, you know, touristy places that are you know, come to first, first trip, you know, over to the UK. Yeah. I I love that. I, last summer I read uh, a season in Dornick and I, I just can't imagine how great it would be to to truly be able to get that feeling of how the locals, you know, live and play in a place um, that's really special, you know, so, you know, obviously, you know, you're making some commentary there about the, um, sort of touristy spots. If, if you were going to recommend to someone like myself who was actually yet to hop over the pond and play, you know, true, um, links golf, where, where should I go when I take my, my, my mm, first trip? Yeah. It, it's such a catch 22 because, you know, St. Andrews, it's the home of golf and it is, it is that special. It does live up to the hype. I mean, it, it is as good as everything that you would dream of. I've never had a single person that, I've recommended her that's gone there that, that didn't enjoy it. Um, and even more than they thought they were going to when they went there. Um, but it is a little bit of, of, um, you know, uh, it's filled with tourists the, in the town, especially. Um, so St. Andrews, I mean, you got to go there. Um, that's the pilgrimage. And, you know, there are enough great golf courses close by that you can play. Um, you know, you can play Ely or you can play, um, you know, you can go up to Carnoustie, um, and, and if you're going to car and if you're going to St. Andrews, you're going to, you know, 90% of the people are going to fly into Edinburgh from overseas, um, that are headed to St. Andrews. So if you're flying to Edinburgh, then, you know, you can, you can go the other way when you land, you can head, um, you can head East when you land and, and go over to North Berwick or, or Muirfield or, or, um, Gullen. And those are all great, um, a way to do it if you want to do it, um, and really see the place, but, um, you know, you, you're also interested in kind of a little local feel to it. It's just go off season. You know, one of the, I, I tell people all the time, but one of the great things about um, the British Isles is that other than, you know, that, that West coast of Ireland, that's completely exposed to the Atlantic ocean. Other than that, um, the rest of the golf courses are, are pretty um, playable, um, particularly the links courses. You know, that's the great thing about playing on sand and playing links golf courses is, um, you know, mm-hmm. they're playable, you know, an hour after they've had, you know, uh, five inches of rain or four inches of rain. Um, 
And same thing in the wintertime. I mean, it's, it's cold and stuff, but that's, that's when the locals play. You know, I, I, um, I'm a member at St. Andrews Golf Club in, in St. Andrews, and, you know, they, their events, uh, you know, they have the Thursday Men's League, and they, you know, their different monthly medals and things like that, and they're fully subscribed uh, almost around the year. And, um, you know, they, hmm. I, I think most of the locals will tell you they like it better when all the tourists head home in August or September, and, and they get October and November to themselves, and, the, you know, the average pace of play goes down by 45 minutes you know it drops from four hours to three hours and 15 mm, minutes that's uh that's to them their style of golf and you know playing match play and, and hitting it and 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 keeping it moving um so i i'd say you know st andrews for your first trip but you know picking a off-season time or what you think is off-season is is uh is maybe not not the, not the worst idea um and then definitely down on the coast um you know the courses at rye um, sandwich, which is Royal St. George's and, and deal, which is Royal St. Ports. I mean, they're, they're known even among the British, you know, the, the guys that live in London is that that's the place to be in the, in the wintertime. You know, they, they, they have events down there. They'll guys will, you know, get off work on, on Friday and jump in the car and, and drive down an hour and a half or whatever down to the coastline. And they'll, they'll play golf down there in January and February. Well, that's interesting. I never really thought about the, yeah, off season over there, but I I hear I hear similar things from some of my friends who are frequent flyers out to Bandon. Yeah, they'll go out it's, there in the middle of the yeah, winter kind, kind of similar up. to where you know I'm, I'm I mean I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There, there's a good chance you're going to catch some pretty raw playing conditions. Um, you know, if you go to if you go to Royal St George's in in you know March or in December, but um, there's not going to be six inches of snow on the ground. You know, it's it's kind of protected from. <laughs> Like, like Seattle is or like Bandon Dunes is um, just the fact that they're that close to the water kind of protects them from the snow. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a good way. But, but um, you know, I think one of the great things about social media, which I'm obviously pretty active on is, is, is that, uh, you know, people are finding out about more places and, and, and if you've got an interest in it, it's easier than ever to go over there and, and to go to, you know, St. Anna doc to play golf or to, or to, or to go to, you know, uh, um, you know, Troon and, and Presswick and, and, and places that, you know, you mentioned Dornick before. It's, it's incredible to me reading some of the stories about how few, not just American tourists, but even, even Scottish nationals who were, you know, big time golfers. Um, you know, you, you'd meet a club professional who'd spent his entire life around the game in St. Andrews or, or around Edinburgh. And you ask them about Royal Dornick and they'd never been there. You know, it's just, uh, you know, the ease of travel and the road system, you know, getting better and, and social media with booking hotels and reserving tea times and things like that. Um, you know, it, it's easier than ever, I would say, to kind of get off the beaten track and, and anybody who's got a real curiosity about some of these places they've read about or they've seen pictures of um, to actually to get there is, is easier than ever. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. You know, speaking of social media, uh, and your own personal engagement, I've I've thoroughly enjoyed following uh, your Twitter handle at uh, Bama Bearcat, as you mentioned earlier. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got interested in sharing things on that uh, platform, and maybe what you like? Most uh, I think just you know, it's it was an easier way to keep friends and family, you know, informed on on what I was doing and where I was going, and and. Uh, you know, the things that I saw, um, I like the format of, you know, I'm, 
I joke all the time. I'm I'm far too lazy to ever try to host a podcast or, or write a blog, <laughs> you know, churning out articles and things like that. I'm just not my work ethic to this. It would kind of spoil the game for me if I attached some kind of deadlines to what I was doing. But uh, um, yeah, it's just a chance to really quickly. I see a, a golf hole or a picture of something or something hanging in one of these clubhouses when I'm there. Uh, it's it's an easy way for me to kind of memorialize, you know. Oh, I met Rye, and they have a cool weather vane hanging in the men's locker room that tells you what direction the, the wind's blowing that day as you're getting ready to put on your golf shoes and go play golf. And that's kind of cool. And I'll snap a picture of it. And, uh, you know, I found it's kind of interesting that, I've, I, that I, what I found others are, you know, interested in and not. I'm, you know, I, I don't, it doesn't generate any uh, income from <laughs> for me or anything like that. And I certainly would never want it to. But uh, because of that, it's kind of freeing to me that. Um, I do it, you know, more for myself and, and the fact that it's caught on with some people and people find it um, interesting to follow is, is if anything, it's kind of humorous to me to figure out that there's other nuts um, like me, you know, one of the, one of the uh, hardest things or the most interesting things is going to some of these places and, and making the efforts that I do to see some of these things is, is finding out there that are others like me that are as crazy about it as I am. It's nice. Yeah. They're, they're, Twitter is good for finding out that, uh, you know, we're not alone. Uh, you know, in all of your, um, adventures, uh, what are some of the most interesting things you've come across out there, uh, in clubhouses near and far? Uh, Japan for sure is an interesting place. You know, they have, uh, more golf courses in Japan than they're in Scotland or in England. Um, and it, it is a golf obsessed um, country. Um, you know, it, it's very underreported and very underappreciated. Uh, th- those people love their golf and, and actually playing golf, not just falling on TV or whatever, but, but, but genuinely they get after it. I mean, the driving ranges and, you know, they have, um, you know, short courses that are, that are basically pitching putts. It's hard to describe in America, but they're, you know, 30 to 40 yard long holes that you play with a, a, a basically the same golf ball kind of, and some of them use artificial um, turf and some of them are on real ground, but um, you know, they, they love it, you know, they, and they play and, and especially at their top courses um, it's, you know, the, the, you know, the, the grooming that they do of their top courses and the kind of the, um, you know, the customs that, that they have are just enough different than what we in America do with our golf that, I find it really interesting, you know, I, and I love it. I, I absolutely loved it. I, I was there last time. I've been there a couple of times, but last year I went and I was had a really good lineup of, I went to see um, Hirono, which is the most people would acknowledge as the top course in, in uh, Japan was reopening after a renovation. And um, I was fortunate enough to play it right after it, it had reopened. And, um, um, you know, it's just really interesting how, how, you know, how they do things there, you know, how they do the whole, locker room procedures and how they do the shower and the bath after after they get done playing and they stop it at you know you have two tea times you have a front nine tea time and a back nine tea time and you can either book them two hours apart or you can book them four hours apart so that you can have a a wonderful but simple lunch in between the front nine and the back nine you know and and the way that the caddies work there you know the caddies are these older ladies that have been working there forever and you know they they have four four bags on a little basically like a push cart some of them are automated some of them aren't and and the way that they you know do the yardages and fill in the divots and just 
I, I find the little things, you know, fascinating. No, no pro shops in, in Japan, no club professionals, you know, all the equipment and stuff that's all bought, you know, from a third party offsite at a, at a, like a PJ superstore type thing. And so there's no, you know, there's no pro or, or pro shop on, on site at these, even at the top clubs. Um, it's just, it's just fascinating. You know, the, the, they have little gift counters and the gifts are like chocolate. You know, like the only thing you can get with a logo on it at, at Hirono or Tokyo golf club is usually like a, a box of chocolates that have the logo stamped on the top. And it's for the members to give to the guests, like as a thank you for coming to experience their club. You know, there's no whipping out your wallet and buying a Peter Millar shirt with a, you know, Hirono logo on the sleeve or anything like that. So I just find it fascinating, you know, the different places around the world, you know, you do that. And then, and then maybe a year later, I'm in, you know, I'm in the Netherlands playing and it's a whole different experience. You know, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's like the difference between Florida golf and, you know, in golf and, you know, in Long Island, you know, it's uh it's the same game. You got to get the ball in the yeah. hole and, you know, it's, it's great that no matter where you go, pretty much anybody can play with anybody, which is another thing, reason I think golf is the greatest game because anybody, you know, old and, and young and husband and wife and child and grandfather, you know, can play, uh, you know, that's that's fantastic um but it's the little customs that you know that are a little bit different you know just little different takes that have developed in time different parts of the world you know i'd, I'd love to get to india i haven't been to india yet to play golf I'd, i want to go to tully gunge and i want to go to royal calcutta and see how they do it you know it's you know i know there's going to be 18 holes there and i know you're going to have to you know put your, hole in, your ball on the ground and hit it and hit it again until you get it in the hole but i'm cur- kind of curious about what all the other stuff that goes along the way is you know that's developed over time i find that interesting Oh, well, I'm with you. I, 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 those are my favorite kind of rabbit holes to, to fall down into, which is one of the reasons yeah, I wanted I to like have this chat. And I like it. Here, here, no, here. I, I, uh, yeah, it's, and it's cool. I, I, you know? One of the downsides, I think, of social media is that, you know, it does tend to kind of bifurcate golfers or it, it divides us sometimes instead of uniting us. And I don't understand that part of it all. I don't understand people that only want to play golf one way or, or they only want to play golf the other way. I, I like all of it. And I always have, you know, if I go to Florida and I'm with my buddies and we're going to drive around in the golf carts and listen to music playing and drink beer while we're playing golf in Florida, cause it's a nice day and it's the middle of January. I like that. And if I'm in Scotland and the wind's blowing and it's 35 degrees and, and, you know, and we're carrying our own clubs and trying to play in three hours. And I like that, you know, I like all of it. And I like going to the, state championship for high school players in Alabama and watching them play by the rules and, 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 you know, and, and, uh, in competitive golf, you know, I like, I kind of like all of it. I, I don't know why, but I do. I, it, it caught me at a young age and, and, uh, I, I like all the different forms of it. You know, I, the, if, if you want to play with hickory clubs, great. You know, and if you want to smoke cigars and take four and a half hours to play, that's fine. As long as you're not in front of me. That's fine too. You know, I like, I like everything about it. It's just fascinating to me trying to hit a ball in a hole, how it can uh, get a hold of us and, uh, and consume us. But, but man, it has for me. I'm a, I'm a sicko. That's for sure. Yeah. I, I know the feeling. Yeah. It's interesting. You're talking about kind of the different uh, ways the game is played You know, here in our own country. And it's one of the reasons I'm really looking forward to Tom Coyne's next book is to kind of get his, his take on some of these things. And um, it, it really is incredibly diverse when you think about the landscape of golf in America. What are, what are some of your favorite 
places in this country that you um, uh, I mean up, up on Long Island for sure um, you know the the idea that I can play places like National Golf Links or Shinnecock that were you know that were among the fir- very first in the game I mean I, I am a history buff for sure so it, I mean it just gives me chills up my spine thinking about like you know or or Marion you know thinking that man you know Bobby Jones stood on that tee and and you know and and was trying to finish the grand slam and do something. And, and he probably knew when he was playing that that was going to be it for him and nobody else did. Um, and I'm, I can stand right there on the same tee. Like that, that seems crazy to me. You know, they don't let me, they don't let me into the Yankee stadium to play center field for the Yankees. But um, if I behave myself enough, I can, you know, and pull a few strings, I can get to the first tee at Marion and, and try my hand at the same place that Bobby Jones did, um, you know, or, or Francis Wimette at, you know, up in Brookline. Um, I love that kind of stuff. So yeah, pro- probably the, the older places, um, they don't necessarily have to be fancy or anything like that. Um, I just, I, I like them. In fact, I kind of respect the places that, that aren't super fancy, but are just, um, you know, they know who they are. I think any kind of golf, the best golf courses, the best golf clubs, public or private, um, the one thing that they all seem to have in common around the world, not just the United States, but in Scotland and in Japan and everywhere is they know what they want to be. You know what I mean? I mean, if you're, if you're in a Hawaii and they know like, Hey, this is going to be a resort course and we're going to make it fun. And you can, you know, you know, you're here to have fun and drink margaritas and, and, you know, have a good time because you're on vacation. They know what that is. And if you're at, uh, you know, and if you're at, you know, Newport Golf Club, you know, you, you know, that's a whole different deal and it's a whole different thing, but they know what they are. You know I mean? They've been doing it for a long time or San Francisco Golf Club or Camargo in Cincinnati. I've always kind of been, you know, I've always found it interesting, those places that, you know, a long time ago, they kind of identified what they wanted to be and they're perfectly content to, to do what they want to do. Um, and you can take it or leave it, but they don't adjust to the whims of, of time. You know, it's like the, it's like the guy who's who's happy to wear his, you know, his Brooks Brothers suit, and he's not really interested in what the fashion of the day is. <laughs> you know, he's he's going to wear his navy suit or his gray suit, and he, you know, uh, lapels may get wider or shorter, and cuffs and pleats and everything else, but he's just very comfortable with who he is. And uh, and I think um, in a lot of ways, uh, the best places are are comfortable with with what they are, no matter what what no matter what it is. Yeah, I, I like the way you you frame that. You know, I <laughs> the general manager out in our place here, Tallahassee, and we were having a conversation uh, recently, and you know, we kind of went down the the path of, you know, there there are some people who want our our little home club to to be something that it's really not, and and you know, we were just saying, hey, look, the sooner we can embrace, you know, who we really are, and uh, make sure the world is, you know. Uh, alert to to what our future looks like um the the better off it's going to be you know we've got a really casual laid back place a lot of history out there really pretty place um and i just keep trying to encourage them saying look you know don't don't try to be something you're not just let's just be the best version of us and everything else will probably take care of itself you know and i I agree i think people are attracted to that i mean if you make that happen you know sometimes you might my uh my father, when I behaved myself, which was rarely, but if I was behaving myself and he need, they needed a fourth for their Sunday morning golf game, they would play at a place called Potter's, uh, Potter's in, uh, 
just outside of Cincinnati, Ohio, and Potter's had maybe the the worst locker room you've ever seen. I mean, it was concrete floors and, you know, and, uh, and the lockers and all dented. And, you know, you could see the spike marks from where people had for 50 years been walking in and out mm-hmm. of this, up and down the aisles of this locker room, you know, in their metal spikes and stuff like that. But, man, what wouldn't you pay for that today? You know what I mean? It's, I mean, the problem is at some point somebody gets an idea or somebody's, you know, the new club president's wife decides she's going to bring in an interior director to redecorate it. And, um, you know, you're better off just leaving it as it was and, and embracing the fact that it's a little worn out and a little shoddy. And, uh, it's, it's, that's pretty universal. I think that you can, you know, the, a lot of the best places in golf, um, they're all a little bit shoddy, um, you know, around the edges because they're focusing their time on what's important. You know, they're not really worried about, um, you know, having eight different, um, flavors of, of, uh, you know, potato chips at the turn house. It's, you know, they're there for the golf. And uh, I think that, you know, you can, if you, once you get around a lot and you travel and see different places, like you can identify that almost immediately. They're like, Oh, golfers take care of this place. You know, they, this is the place that's, you know, where it's, it's run by golfers. And that doesn't mean you can't have a swimming pool or tennis courts or whatever, but, but it's, you know, you can just kind of tell. And it's, you know, my golf books, um, I'm always amazed when I'm reading a, a new biography about a, a golf course designer, you know, whether it's somebody modern or it goes all the way back to Donald Ross or Alistair McKenzie or whoever, you know, you, you, you read the first 20 chapters of the book and it's talking about all the great places that they've designed and all the great events they've held and stuff. But I find fascinating those last couple of pages in the book, there's always an appendix that lists every golf course that they built and how many of them are no longer in existence. And, you know, you know that, Alistair McKenzie, if he built, you know, 40 golf courses and 20 of them are world-class. And then there's these others that we've never heard of that are just gone or, you know, they've been changed so much. It's like the movie star that's had too much plastic surgery. And that's not Alistair McKenzie's fault, you know, but like somewhere (laughs) along the line, somebody just lost the plot line of what it takes. And it's to be a good golf club, you need, you know, it certainly helps if you, if you were lucky enough to have hired Alistair McKenzie or, or, uh, Ben Crenshaw or, or, um, you know, Langford Moreau or whoever, but it's also a lot of years of, of greens chairman and, and superintendents and, you know, everybody up and down the line, kind of all their oars rowing in the same direction. And, um, you know, and you just see history repeat itself on that over and over again. Yeah. You're, you're talking about your, um, book collection uh how expansive is the library um, in your house so on book collectors if you get nutty and so the, the the nutty enough I, I, I guess the short story is i've got enough of them that i've had to reinforce the shelves in my library i have not had to reinforce the floor <laughs> yet so there are i, I have talked i know through michael hurston <laughs> who has a fantastic collection michael hurston who's the you know, golf architect and, and um, historian mm-hmm. and, and long time. He's, he's got a fantastic collection up in Columbus, Ohio. Very, very well known. He, he, he actually had to have the floor underneath his library reinforced because of the weight was going to collapse it. Um, I have not gotten to that point yet. Now, I don't know that whether that's a very convincing selling point to my wife that things aren't out of hand yet. But, um, yeah, step one, if you're going to collect golf books, is make sure you get shelves that are reinforced because they the golf books tend to be big and heavy um i've probably i've got about uh 2000 books um 
most of them cover either club histories or, or are the architects themselves. I've always been interested in kind of the golf course side of it. Um, I, I never had much of an interest in, um, instructional booklets or, you know, a biography about Seve Ballesteros or something like that. They, you know, they tend to be written by people that are authorized to, to do the books and, and, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's, so most of them are, are, um, you know, n- not to, um, given both sides of the story or the information that you really want to hear. I mean, I, I'm still waiting for a good Tiger Woods book, I think, but, um, yeah, so I, I like the golf course ones, you know, it's, um, club histories, the best ones are, you know, we'll give you an idea about the golf course and then a little bit of what it's like to be a member. You know, you're, you're not going to get too much behind the scenes of the controversies and stuff like that. Cause again, the, the books themselves are, they're all authorized by the clubs and, and they're, you know, commissioned by the clubs. So, um, they're, they're not going to be fair and balanced by any means, but, uh, I find them interesting. It's, you know, I, I kind of describe them to people as if you can, th- if you think of like a yardage book, it, it's a yardage book on steroids, you know, the best ones are, there's good descriptions of a hole by hole, mm-hmm. give you a, you know, information about famous members or big events that have been held there. And, and, you know, I, my, my, mine is, I, I just definitely describe my books as a, as a library rather than a collection. You know, if it was a collection, I, I shouldn't read them because the value goes down Yeah, when you read them and you, you know, spill a miller light on it by accident but um but but i i buy it to learn you know i don't i don't buy anything because i think it's going to go up in value or or because i um you know i think i'm going to make a profit on it um i don't sell any of my books i just keep buying new ones and um keeping the old ones um i buy them because it's i think they've got something inside them that i want to learn and in particular with golf um golf club histories a lot of them just they're not available in libraries or they're not you know the information that that you're interested in is not, you know, you can't just Google it. So in some ways it's kind of a throwback and I enjoy that part of it too. You know, there's, there's not much in life these days that you can't find online. And um, in a lot of cases, private golf clubs are one of the few things left that if you want to learn about Somerset Hills or San Francisco golf club, the best way to do it is track down one of the books and buy it and spend a night reading about it. I have this vision, you know, as I, I'll see you, you know, tweeting about certain books of, of you pacing around in this majestic, you know, golf club history library, uh, you know, a very Jeffersonian, uh, you know, kind of look to it. Is it, is it that, is it that formal or is this, uh, you know, a room that's got books stacked in every corner and, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a only room for a chair to sit yeah, and drink mineral light been, and read books? If you'd asked me that question a year ago, it probably would have been. Uh, a lot more disorganized. The fact that I've been <laughs> home for a year is, has, uh, I, I've gotten more organized with it and my, uh, and some of that on my own and some of that at direction of my wife. But yes, I, I do have, it does take up an entire room. Um, you know, books, uh, when you say 2000 books, that's a lot, by the way, it's a lot more than some people think. Yeah. How many is that? Like if you count, so you, if you measure feet, uh, a bookshelf space. That's another way that when you know you've got too many books, when you stop telling people how many books you have and how many feet of shelf space you have, you know, it, 300 feet of bookshelf space is a lot of books shelf space. You know, if you think of a bookshelf as six feet wide and it's eight feet high, that's only 50 feet. You'd need, you know, and you can do the math on how many of those you would need. So, yeah, I, I enjoy it. It's, you know, it's, uh, again, I'm not, trying to make any money off of anything i'm trying to learn and i enjoy loaning them out to people as i've as the clock ticks over to, to 50 years old for me this year uh, I, i've kind of enjoyed this renaissance oh. you and and a lot of the other podcasters whether it's 
you know, Andy Johnson at the fried egg or the no laying up guys or whoever, that there, there does seem to be a new, a next generation of people who are interested in this stuff. And, um, it kind of, um, I'm happy to see it, you know, that this stuff isn't, you know, I think book collectors in general, that the number one, you know, thing that, that the old guys talk about all the time is, well, what's going to happen when these are all gone? You know what I mean? They're going to go, you know, they're going to go to auction or they're going to, you know, what, what, who am I going to pass this information on to that, you know, my children aren't going to be interested in it. Who's, who's going to, who's going to pick up the torch on some of this stuff. And um, I feel kind of like that stuff about some of the stuff that the USGA or, or the RNA, you know, we, I volunteer for some projects for some of those guys. And, uh, you know, you wonder like, who's going to read this stuff, you know, like I'm, I'm really interested in this and I'm putting a lot of effort into, uh, trying to help with this and, and who's it going to be for. So it's been very gratifying to see the work that, that you guys have been, you know, doing over social media and with your followers, um, to, to kind of pick it up and, and take over the torch and, and keep advancing it. And I think it's wonderful. You know, I think it's all positives, you know, where else can you, what other sport can you be outside and get fresh air and get exercise and, play with your grandson or play with your wife or play with your best friends and, um, you know, and, and do it until you're 90 years old. Yeah, I think that's, that's well put, you know, I, I think about what's so cool, you know, about a lot of the folks who are participating in social media in and around golf these days is you've got some really great, um, translators out there, so to speak, people who can have a conversation with someone who's got a very, you know, deep knowledge like yourself, and then find a way to translate that into, you know, enough, you know, uh, crumb enough of a crumb trail for those with the passing interest to come in and, you know, start to follow along and dive a little bit deeper over time. And um, social media definitely allows for that, which is, yeah. which is fun. Um, I, I quite question for you, so. Um, I, uh, my project for 2021 is, uh, to finally complete a, um, a version of, uh, a club history for, for, for my country club. Um, a lot of interesting history, a lot of interesting personas over time. Um, you know, it's, it's, we don't have a ton of resources, so I kind of have the luxury of being able to do it however I want to do it. It'll, you know, uh, you know, be a, a low rent production, but one that I get to own, I suppose. Um, well, what kind of recommendations would you, would you offer me? You know, when you think about some of the things the I, you know, I, I don't, I don't have much interest in the sort of glossy whitewash version of it. I'd like to have something yeah. that's a little more real and a little more authentic. Um, what kind of, well, things I would, would you I would definitely I'd agree on the, there? um, you know, it can be, it, it does not have to be fancy. Um, there, there were a, um, you know, we we in the United States are about to, I hope, embark on kind of our golden age of golf book um, issuances. You know, there's a lot of great golf courses that were built in the 1920s and early 1930s. And so there are a ton of, of club history books and, and, and golf course um, appreciation books, I guess you could call them, or documentations about golf course developments. Um, they're all going to be coming out in the 10 years. There's a number of projects that I've heard through the grapevine and I'm very excited mm-hmm. about, um, you know, crystal downs and, and Wingfoot, And, um, there's a bunch of them that have never really had a, a serious, I know, kind of, um, scholarly look at, at their, you know, at their histories and their golf courses that, that will be coming out for their 100th anniversaries. Um, but in England and in Scotland, when they, when they went through the same thing, kind of 10 years ago, 20 years ago, there's a lot of really cool 
books and information that came out that are, you know, 30 pages long and they're, and they're soft cover, you know, they're, they don't have to have a bunch of glossy pictures and drone shots and be 300 pages long and cost $200. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are a bunch of them that are just, you know, that are soft covers and, and you could almost describe them kind of as pamphlets, you know, and, um, but they get the job done. And so I think that's good. Um, you know, the books, I mean, you can always do kind of, you kind of divide them into categories too. You know, there's, there's the ones that are for the members that are kind of the who, what, where, why that list, you know, everybody who won the spring four ball, you know, and what their winning scores were. And, you know, and it's a, and it's a kind of a blow by blow account of the club history, which isn't, you know, super interesting if you're not a member there, but, but if you're handing it out as a T prize for the member member, um, tournament, you know, on the. 75th anniversary of your club's founding that, you know, that that's, that's what those are intended for. And then there's others that are big glossy books that are meant to, you know, be displayed in the pro shop and retail for $200 and are, you know, money-making, um, uh-huh. you know, money-making um, ventures, you know, it's a, it's a way to pay for the recent club renovation or whatever, you know, you think, well, we're, we spent a million dollars renovating our course. How can we get this back? Well, we'll, we'll print 500 copies of a book and try to sell them for $200 a piece. And um, you know, and that's a way to go also that's, you know, it's a, it's a, is a kind of a keepsake or a memento that guests are going to, you know, take home from their, their day visiting, you know, your golf course. And those are, those are fine too. You know, I, I like them all, but um, yeah, so it's kind of, kind of like we talked about earlier with golf clubs need to understand who they are and what they are. I would say kind of your book before you start, you, you the same thing, you know, do you, do you want to, do you want it to be kind of a record of, of events um, for the club and, and the club membership, or do you want it to be a, um, you know, more a celebration of, of the best parts of the golf course and the club and, you know, famous tournaments it's had and, and, you know, presenting the golf course in the best possible light that you can, you can show it in. Now, some clubs, and I, and I do like this trend, some have divided those two up for exactly that reason. So they've issued a club history that is a, hmm. um, you know, kind of behind closed doors. They're not available for sale publicly. Um, it's for the membership. And then there's a second book, a parallel, or, or in some cases, it's a, like a, you know, same cover, same binding issued by the same publisher. That's more like an evolution of the golf course. And it's got, you know, big, um, gra- you know, on graph paper shows what's changed on what holes over the years and which bunkers have moved and, and things like that. And, and I, I really like that trend as well. And those are more available to the general public or they're available to, um, to uh, you know, guests in the pro shop and stuff like that. Uh, Garden City, Garden City Golf Club was the f- was one of the first that kind of went with that model. Uh, Royal Melbourne did one around the same time where they did you know separate. They did a club history and then they did a an, an evolution of the golf course or a, a golf course book just about the golf course, nothing about the membership. And um, you know, it, it allows the the book about the about the club to be a little bit more inside baseball while while still providing a you know something that can be sold or or given away or whatever distributed um that's just about the golf course and you know for somebody like me that's much more interesting or relevant if i'm not a member at the golf course so a lot of good ones of those lately yeah marion had a great one that just came out yeah that's uh baltimore you know their recent they, they tend to be after you know renovations uh, kind of the prevent presenting them but um yeah if you can get a, you know, mm-hmm. a hold of one of those if you're a golf course architecture fan at all some of them are really fantastic too because they can also go a little bit more in depth on on you know what was done and why you know the uh the one for marion that covers their most recent renovation was done gil hans and it's you know how often you can mm. read 50 pages of gil hans's thoughts on a place like marion and why 
you know, why he made the changes he did or what changes they made and why they felt they were necessary. It's, you know, for me, that's, that's, you know, much more my, my interest. Yeah. That in a, yeah, uh, that yeah, in a nice cab is an awful good night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, I want to, um, that's great advice. Um, one thing I do want to touch on a little bit before we, uh, wind up is, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, your, your day job, uh, per se. Um, tell me, tell me what you do for yeah, a living so and, I, I, and what that was. People are probably wondering, well, how in the world does he get to play all these places? And why does his wife let, let him get away with traveling to all these <laughs> fantastic spots? I, I do, uh, during, you know, uh, the portion of my life that's dependent on, um, you know, an occupation. I, I, I have represented professional golfers, um, more of a business manager the uh, rather than agent, but, but a manager, meaning I try to help them with their contracts and their, you know, their taxes and their legal affairs and, and things like that. And kind of the, uh, you know, if you think of like a back office for a professional golfer of just making sure everything behind the scenes is getting done. Um, you know, I'm not out there, you know, necessarily negotiating multi-million dollar deals with Buick or something like that. It's, it's more of just making sure that the taxes are getting paid and, and, uh, you know, the caddy's getting his W-2 at the end of the year and things like that. But, uh, yeah, it, it has definitely come with some fringe benefits for, for a golf nut like me. Um, it was not my main occupation. I had a real job for, you know, for 23 years of, of, uh, in the finance world. And, um, that also involved a lot of travel and things like that, um, that, that gave me some great opportunities to see some great golf courses. But, um, yeah, for about the last decade, I've been, uh, been helping out some golfers and, and, uh, you know, trying to make sure they're, they're, uh, you know, the, the business of being a professional golfer that they're, they're getting all that done that needs to be done. Uh, yeah, a, a golfer named Jimmy Herman. I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio in a golfer named Jim Herman, uh, who's yeah. won on tour the last two years in a row. Um, Jim is younger than I am. He is six years younger than I am, but or seven years younger than I am, but we, um, we went to the same high school in the, in the same college university of Cincinnati. So I was aware of Jim, you know, when, when he was, coming up and we had some mutual friends or, you know, uh, I knew, I knew, you know, the professionals and people that worked at some of the golf courses where he practiced and played and things like that. So it was a pretty natural fit when he um, made it onto the um, nationwide tour at the time to, um, you know, I was looking for some help with, you know, Hey, what do I do? I just won, you know, $15,000 in Australia and they took out 25% for taxes. Can I get any of that back? Um, My, my former occupation, um, or what I was doing at the time lined up well with, you know, knowing about, you know, some of that stuff, my, my background as a CPA. So, um, started helping Jim out and, and, you know, I'm not sure he thought that, you know, 14 years later, he'd still be on the PGA tour. I, you know, or either of us did, we, we both kind of look at each other and say, can you believe this? this you know, this is still happening. We're, uh, in fact, we're, we're headed to Augusta national in a, a couple weeks for, you know, for some practice rounds for him. Jim's playing in the masters this year. And, uh, and I get to be his plus one for the practice rounds. And, and I'm sure when, when we're there driving down Magnolia lane in two weeks or three weeks, we'll, we'll look at each other again and think, can you believe two guys from Cincinnati that we get to go into a place like this? So, you know, it's a lot of good fortune and a lot of breaks, but uh, I started with Jim and the rest of it is really just kind of word or, a word of mouth, um, you know, to, to, to try to do what I do on the, I get tons of emails and, phone calls and texts from people saying, Hey, how do I become an agent on the PGA tour? That's what I want to do. And, um, my, my, my reply is you really can't, um, it's, it's a pretty closed shop. You, you've either 
got to, you know, be the one person picked out of, you know, 3000 people applying for an internship at Wasserman or at IMG, you know, the big, the big boys that, you know, represent 50 different players and, and control, you know, sponsored exemptions and things like that. Or you need to be a, a single um, player or, or represent three or four or five players like I do and, and, you know, be a very small shop that keeps your overhead low so that you can, you know, you can get through the lean times. There's, there's not much in between and it, it is a very, very tough business to get in. Um, so I've been, you know, very fortunate that kind of as a second act of my business career, I started with a, a guy, a real gentleman like Jim Herman, who's, you know, um, tolerated me learning on the job and, and then also been willing to, you know, recommend me to some of his friends and, and, uh, help it grow from there. Yeah, that's cool. I, I'm, I'm having a flashback to when my, uh, my uncle was on tour back around uh i think he was on from 98 through about 02 and my my grandfather was basically you know the uh the 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 back office for him and it was you know there was even back then before the the, some of the purses had got to where they are today but um there was there was a lot involved i mean he was he was always working on some stuff for him and uh um, I'm sure um, that job is never boring. Well, yes and no. I would say it's there can be parts of it that are mundane, and I it, it's I think it's a lot like the old joke about you know if, if you if you want to play a lot of golf, the last thing you want to do is be a club club professional. <laughs> you know, it's 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 a lot the same when people say you know yeah. this, you know you know where were you standing when Jordan Spieth chipped those two balls in the water at the 2017 Masters? Well. I know exactly where I was. I was at the rental house doing the laundry so that we could get our deposit back. <laughs> like, I didn't like, I, I know exactly where I was. You know, I was trying to get our $5,000 back for the deposit for the week. It, it's, um, you know, there's a lot of that type of stuff where, uh, yeah, it's, it's fun to, to stand on the back of the range and, and, but, uh, and watch, you know, Dustin Johnson, uh, hit drivers, but I'm not making any money for me or for my clients when I'm doing that. You know what I mean? The, the reality is you're only making money if mm-hmm. you are sitting at your desk hunched over a phone, cold calling people, asking them for money. You know, I mean, that's um, that's the reality of it. And there's a hundred no's for every yes. And, um, you know, like any other job where you're you're selling, basically, or you're asking people for money. And then there's a whole lot of paperwork that's, you know, just, um, you know, it's paperwork. It is what it is. But, uh, yeah, no, it's been it's been great. Jim, I'm very fortunate. Hermie, as we call him, um, Jim, Jim likes to travel. He likes to play golf. We, we, he will go on a vac- vacation with, with me and his buddies. And, you know, we'll, we'll go to Scotland for five or six days every, every year, every other year. So good play, you know, 10 different places in five or six days. And, and, um, and he's, you know, he's very comfortable uh, lashing his golf bag to a, you know, to a trolley in, in uh, some small town in Scotland and, and pulling his own pull cart around and playing 18 holes in 35 degree weather. Um, you know, he's, he's one of those guys who's like me, he's a sicko. He's, he, he loves it. Um, so, um, yeah, there's, there's been some friends. There's no question about that, but, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting, I guess at times. What do you, what do most people get wrong about or, or misunderstand about, uh, you know, the, the life and times of, a you know, I, when I say, I'll use the word average tour player, whatever that may mean. Um, but, you know, sort of your rank and file uh, tour players, guys that have the card pretty consistently, but, um, you know, 
are probably more prone to play in Puerto Rico sure. than uh, the World Golf Championship. Um, if that makes sense. Say the travel. You know, it it is these guys are in. There, there's different kinds of shape. You know, there's physical shape. There's everything we talk about with, you know, Bryson DeChambeau, or whatever. But there's also a certain amount of stamina that you have to build up both physically and mentally to travel as much as they do, you know, year after year, week after week, year after year. Um, it's a grind. You know, if you think about how tired you are when you come back from a buddy's golf trip to Bannon Dunes where you've played four, you know, four rounds in three days or whatever um, and stayed up till midnight, you know, two in the morning, whatever. Um, they do that week after week after week. You know, it, it, this is not the NBA or, uh, or Major League Baseball where they, you know, they get on a team charter and, and, you know, the traveling club secretary tells them you know, where they're going and the bus takes them from the, from the airport to the, to the hotel and stuff like that. They, you know, they are independent contractors and they have to travel on their own. And it, it is, you know, it's, it's a reason why, in my opinion, there is not as close of a correlation between a good college player and a, um, you know, a successful touring full-time touring professional as there is maybe in the NBA or, or uh, the NHL or something where, you know, you can, you can, you know, you know, when somebody's 18 years old, whether or not they're probably going to be a, a pretty good, you know, whether they're going to get drafted and be a pretty good ball player um, in, in golf, it's still not like that. It, it's getting a little bit more correlated as, you know, the AJGA and college teams travel more and are more aggressive with, you know, playing robust schedules and, and traveling, you know, uh, coast to coast. But um, yeah, it's, it's exhausting. I mean, when I come home, I'm tired. And, I, you know, I don't I only go out, you know, whatever, six weeks a year or something like that, uh, depending on how many majors, you know, my players are playing and stuff like that. But but if you follow Jim Herman around for three straight weeks, you would be exhausted when you get home. You know, I mean, he's you got to do all the stuff with hotels and packing and unpacking and rental cars and all that, like you would if you were, you know, working for Procter and Gamble or something and had a job where you travel. But on top of that, you're you're walking eight miles a day and hitting golf balls and dealing with media and you know it's it's uh it's a physically grueling you know and mentally grueling trying to be on it's i think it attracts a certain kind of personality of you know the guys that are um you know kind of optimists by nature you know because there's a lot of failure involved too you know they fail a lot um that's i would say that's kind of the physical you know travel side i think on playing probably that they're not as good with the short irons as people would assume they are. If you, if you look at the, uh, you can go, you can go on the PJ tour.com. If you look up their, uh, you know, their, their relationship in the greens and regulation from 120 to 130 yards or, or their proximity to the hole, you know, how many feet away are they from even from a hundred yards away? Um, it's not as close as people would think it is, you know, they're, they're, they're not as dead eye with those wedges as people would assume they are. I mean, even the, I think the tour average is like 78% or something from 120 yards, even hitting the green, which, you know, that, that doesn't seem possible, but, but, you know, on television, you're only watching the guys that are playing good. You're not watching the guys that are missing the cut that are, you know, shooting 75, 75 and going home. Um, the flip side of that is the driving average. <laughs> I mean, they hit it so far and so straight consistently, you know, I mean, you think of somebody averaging three Oh five, but that means if they hit one drive two seventy, they've got to hit another drive three thirty to make it average 300. And from, you know, going on golf trips with, with Jim Herman or, you know, standing in the driving range and watching those guys. It's not just that how far he hits it, but it's, he does that every time over and over and over and over. And it just, 
you know, it's incredible to watch. I mean, you, I mean, somebody hitting 14 greens or 15 greens in regulation and hitting, you know, hitting whatever, 11 out of 14 fairways with 300-yard drives. Like, you watch them do that five days in a row, and it's, you know, it's, it's eye-opening, you know, that they can do that time and time and time again. They just – they just stamp it out. You know, it's, it'll be interesting to me what, you know, all the talk of the equipment changes and things like that. To me, it's, 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 um, it's much more about the dispersion of the drives than it is the distance. You know, if, if, if they were a little bit more afraid of, of mm-hmm. what's going to happen to the golf ball, if I get it on the heel or on the toe, um, you know, is it going to fly 40 yards offline instead of 10 yards offline? Um, then to me, they would probably naturally dial it back a little bit and not try to hit every drive at 105% you know, um, as much as just that, you know, it's, I mean, the spring effect of off the driver faces is, is, is definitely there, but the, the dispersion to me of, of, you know, how narrow it is and how, you know, they can swing as hard as they can every time and still, you know, find it and hit it again. Yeah, I think it will be very interesting to see how that shakes out. You know, to me, it's, you know, let's, I think if we can get some more, more spin into the ball, side spin into the ball, you know, it, um, particularly at that level, it would make things um, pretty interesting. But you know, that will will be a a fascinating case to to watch unfold. Um, so when so you're you're gonna you're gonna head up there with Hermie to Augusta soon? Um, uh, be yeah, I was first down, out on the road this year. I went down to the Dominican Republic just for a couple of days, and. Um, Trying to think, I was out, well. I was out on the West Coast just briefly. I was I was out there uh, for the week. Um, I was out there for a week, but um, so Pe- Pebble. Nobody was allowed at Pebble. Um, nobody at all was allowed at Pebble. The wives weren't allowed out there. No agents. Nobody except um, caddies and, and golfers. Um, San Francisco was a little bit more lenient. Um, LA is a little bit more lenient. So yeah, it's it's still kind of hit or miss. I think we've kind of entered the phase where um, the tour is kind of just going along with whatever the local, you know, whatever the local uh, um, customs are at the time they visit and it, and it changes all the time. But um, yeah, so it's, it's interesting. I don't think it's, you know, we got, I think we got a couple more interesting months. I'm, I'm like everybody else. I'm optimistic that this summer will be, you know, better. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right and hope you're right. Um do you, how do you feel maybe maybe kind of as a good wrap up question how do you feel about the health of the tour as a as a product as an entertainment product these days you know i, I was thinking a lot about you know obviously tiger's accent the other day and um you know we, we are probably um as close as we'll ever be to uh everyone having to figure out what the post tiger tour looks like um how do you, how, what do you think? What's from your perspective uh, the next few years out there look like, and um, um, well, how do things continue the next to go few there? years are are pretty much guaranteed they're going to be huge successes uh, financially. You know, which is what the tour is interested in. I mean, they're the first commonest. Make no mistake about it; it's a business. I mean, the the PGA mm-hmm. Tour is not interested in the best interest of golf. They're not interested in growing the game. Uh, those are, those would all be great side beneficiaries and help them polish their image a little bit by giving, you know, word to it. But, uh, they are first and foremost, a member owned organization or a member directed organization whose number one goal is to, you know, provide for better and better livelihoods for, for their members. 
Um, and so that, that they have accomplished. I mean, whether it's through their media deals or they, you know, the um, deals they've uh, done with host clubs or their, you know, multimedia stuff, it is, um, you know, now they're getting into gambling, um, all those kinds of things. It's, it's, you know, great times. I mean, it's uh, revenues and things are, are at an all time high. I mean, if you look at the money list and you look at, you know, what is Kevin Kistner said, what finishing 25th place means for these guys, um, what kind of lifestyle you can have. It's, you know, it's good. Now there's, there's a flip side of that, which is, you know, the players would tell you, which is if you look at what the, you know, the 25th best guy in the NFL makes or the 25th best person in the NBA makes versus what 25th, you know, guy on the money list for the PGA tour makes, um, they're still nowhere near. So it's, you know, for the long term, I think it's, how does a PGA tour that's less and less relatable, the game that they play is less and less relatable to the, the average golfer, you know, how does it, how do they still make it interesting to people that are watching on television? You know, for a long time, golf on television was marketed or, or part of the attraction was it was a game you could play, you know, you watched guys play and then you went out and played it the next day. You know, you copied, your favorite pro swing and you use the same equipment that he used because he did it in the same mannerisms. You know, you go to a junior tournament and you see kids marking their ball the same way, you know, the top pros market, you know, that we, we are all just kind of copy that stuff. Does it necessarily need to be that? And, and how do we, how did they get it from the tele, you know, Shackelford tweets out the, the television ratings every Monday or every Tuesday and they're always depressing. It's incredible how bad the ratings are, compared <laughs> to, you know, the worst, um, you know, NFL game, but so how does, you know, how does the PGA tour while they've got time, you know, tiger, I think bought them some time and these new TV contracts and things while they've got the time to do it, will they be able to figure out over the next yep. 10 years how to take the PGA tour in the direction of what the NBA is doing, you know, which is global and, and, and marketing the personalities and the, and the matchups and things like that um, versus what, you know, the major league baseball's, gone the other way in my opinion not very successfully which is kind of just continuing to market as you know well it's just nice day out you know it's a nice night out and it's a way to take your family someplace in the summertime and be entertained mm -hmm. um but you know probably too much product and too many games and therefore most of the games don't mean a whole lot and and um you know it's just an entertainment thing and, and for the pga tour you know when it was smaller in 1960 or 70 that's what it was you know you came to your local town they came to the local towns like the circus you know they put up the tent for four days yeah, some hardcore fans wanted to see whoever, mm -hmm. whoever, but for the most part, it was a chance to just go out and walk around to the local country club that, you know, your only chance to see it each year and, you know, maybe get your picture taken with Arnold Palmer or whatever. Um, you know, that's, that's a whole different deal than what the NBA does and how they market themselves. And so it'll be kind of interesting to see. They've, you know, they've got, you know, some smart people that um, I think have got some big ideas, but, you know, how do they, how do they implement it? They, you know, they, they manage to shoot themselves in the foot sometimes too, but, but uh, I think it's also well-documented. So <laughs> no. Yeah. And that's, that's not unique to them. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think you hit the nail on the head, you know, to me, the great conflict for the future of the tour will be, will the players who own uh, the organization um, allow their staff uh, to ramp up enough uh, drama to keep and hold interest when you don't have a dominant superstar a la 
Tiger Woods. You know, I I think a lot of these other leagues have found ways to you mentioned it kind of like beef up the yeah. the drama of a big matchup. Um, and and it seems like the tour always sort of has this yeah, you know, avoidance of, lines, I think, of conflict. Be, yeah, I think the tour um, would maybe use and I and I think they're going to the have the storylines instead of drama. You know what I mean? That they they want to make you have things to follow. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. As part of that, it's tough. You know, they're in a tough spot with it. With you know the people making all the noise about who aren't very happy with the direction it's going are the hardcore fans. Um, but but if you notice, they're the same hardcore fans are watching every week mm-hmm. and complaining every week, but they're still watching every week. Uh, but if you want to take it to the next level, yeah, you need you need stars and you need better <laughs> TV slots and you need formats that drive storylines and things like that. And it's a tough, uh, you know, it's a tough sell. It's 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 fascinating to me as a business person because the the one thing that's so much drastically different is is you know there is no czar, you know, of golf. I mean, the it, you know the the, the PGA Tour. You know, the commissioner of the PGA Tour doesn't control the four biggest events in golf, and he doesn't control any of the players. There's not a single requirement that any of the players appear at any of the tournaments. They've got mandatory minimums that they have to appear at if they want to keep their uh, tour membership. But uh, there's nothing that says anybody's got to play in the in the in the tour championship or at Greensboro or at Riviera or wherever. And uh, the more and it almost works against them where the more money these guys make, the less incentive there is for these guys to play places they don't want to play. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I don't have any answers. Um, there are no answers. It's, it's, uh, and, and, and nobody has the answers. Yeah. Um, it just, you know, we'll, we'll see how it all plays out. I mean, all the media rights and the, you know, the fact that, you know, Max Homo wins at Riviera, nobody was interested in Max Homo's press conference immediately afterwards. People wanted to hear the podcast that's by Max, Max Homo, you know, and that's, uh, on yeah. some, in some cases, that's a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in other cases, if, you know, if you're hearing directly from the guy himself, uh, that, that may be more interesting in the long term. And, you know, uh, rather than, you know, um, you know, what goes on at media day for the Super Bowl or whatever, you know, so that's, uh, we'll see, we'll see. It'd be interesting to see how it plays out. I, I do not have any answers, but I think it'll be fascinating how, uh, you know, how it, how it goes. Yeah, I agree with you. And we'll see is a good way to look at it. And, and Michael, I, I can't thank you enough for your time tonight. I know, uh, we all got busy schedules and a lot going on and you're juggling a lot. And uh, I've just thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and I'm, I'm hoping that uh, we'll be able to find ourselves um, uh, on some cross paths on the golf course for too long and uh, tell a few more stories. My big takeaway is that you are swings. writing a club history book and I need to have a copy. So that's, uh, that's good. Good info. I picked up today. Good intel. Nothing would please me more than to uh, add one more to that uh, illustrious library you got. (laughs) All right, buddy. Take care. We'll talk to you soon.